turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, after six or eight weeks in Mark chapter 1. We're making our way into Mark chapter 2. I was talking with one of our deacons yesterday. I won't tell you which one. His initials are Larry Hernandez. And I said, tomorrow we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. And he said, it's about time. It's about time. You know, we've been in one so long and that we're turning the chapter. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. On Christmas Eve 1941, Admiral Chester Nimitz, at the direction of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, arrived in Hawaii to assume the command of the Pacific Fleet. The day following Christmas Day, he he toured the harbor known as Pearl Harbor, but he also toured the aftermath of the attack that we also refer to simply as Pearl Harbor. The devastation was immense, as you can imagine. It was, it was quite a sight to behold. And, and people that day said that the mood had been so somber that you would have thought that the United States had already lost the war and that Japan had already won. It's been reported that following the Admiral's tour by boat of the harbor, he was asked, what do you think after seeing all the destruction? And it's been recorded that this was his reply. He He said the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes an attack force could ever make or God was taking care of America. Which do you think it was? People began to wonder, what are you talking about? And all they saw was devastation. All they saw was defeat. And they were so discouraged. And and yet here's this admiral saying that, that, uh, uh, that there was a lot that was not done that could have or should have from the attacker's standpoint been done, done. and so he he went on to explain. He said, first of all, the attack came on a Sunday morning when nine out of every ten men stationed on these ships were on leave instead of nearly 3,000 casualties. It it could have been up to closer to 30,000. And he said, yes, many of the ships, secondly, were, were damaged. We understand that, but he said the dry docks are just adjacent to where the ships were, and they were left untouched making the repair work that much easier. He said, third, all of the fuel for the Pacific Theater of Warfare was kept five miles from Pearl Harbor in above-ground fuel tanks. He said, had they been strafed, that would have greatly hindered or hampered our efforts to rebuild and, and redeploy. There was much to see in the tour that he received that day, but as we observe from his perspective, He saw things a little bit differently than others who were there with him at that time. He had a different perspective. His his perception of it all allowed him to see things differently. And you know, in life, you can't ignore the obstacles. We understand that, but we also need to realize that it's imperative that we don't let the obstacles rob us of our view of the opportunities. Seeing the opportunities before us. Our study of the servant king, Jesus Christ, is showing us that he, like the admiral, uh, the admiral, saw things very different than those around him. He wasn't blinded by the problems, but, but he was able to see through them. And we know that he lived his life with Calvary in view and the pleasure of his father on his mind. And, and he sought to make the most of each moment that he had in life and ministry. As we come to the text before us, we find what what uh, really was an occasion that gave Jesus an opportunity to help so many, to encourage many. It's a time that was seen by many. I believe if we were to look at this text, we could look at it through the eyes of the observers and learn much. Or we could come to this text today and say, you know, let's look at this passage of Scripture through the eyes of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what I want us to do today. We're coming to a great passage of Scripture. And uh, I know all the Scriptures are great, but I mean, this is one that I've been looking forward to, uh, to sharing with you today. If, if my uh, records are right, we've been through this text about four times as a church family in nearly 13 years. And uh, all four of those were on Sunday evenings. And because it's a great text to get a church fired up for, you know, when you're getting ready to do something big together. And, and yet we're going to go through it again today. And believe me when I tell you, it's a very different approach than we've ever had. I just want us to look at these 12 verses today through the eyes of Jesus Christ. See what he saw and how he saw. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing today. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. The Bible in verse 1 says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man, uh, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins? But God only. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. Now we're going to read on, but in verse 10, it's important for us to understand that, that all that is happening here, the healing that Jesus did, we saw that really served as an occasion to validate the message that came. Jesus came to preach, and he made that clear. And it's interesting to me in verse 10, all of this was done, he says, so that the world can see that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. That's the real need. That's the great need. There are a lot of humanitarian needs around the world, and I'm all for doing our part to see how we can help people. But the great need that people have today is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Now, I want you to look back, if you would, to verse 8. And true to Mark's fashion, we find words like straightway and immediately all through every text we're studying in verse 8. And immediately, and here's the statement, when Jesus perceived, when Jesus perceived, there were a lot of people looking around. And we find some in this passage who are reasoning, yet we find Jesus perceiving. And I want us to take some time today, as I've said, just to look at this passage through the eyes of Jesus, taking note of those things that he took note of. Our Father, we thank you today that the Bible's true. We're thankful that we have an opportunity to study. And Lord, if we will, we can learn and grow and serve you in a greater way. Help this service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. 
This passage has long been one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I just can imagine it all taking place. We begin by seeing that Jesus was returning from preaching in the region back to Capernaum. He'd, he'd been gone for some days, the Bible says, away preaching, now returning. And the Bible says that Jesus was in the house. It, it begins that way in verse 1. We're glad to know that Jesus is in the house, but I think it'd be interesting for us to consider whose house is he in here. I don't believe it was Jesus' home personally, for it was Jesus that told us in Luke 9 that foxes have holes and birds of the air, they have nests. But, but he said, you know, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And so we don't believe that Jesus personally had a home in that sense, but he is found here in a home. And if we were to compare Chapter 1 and verse 29 with the text in which we're reading the reference to Jesus entering again. I believe a very strong case could be made that Jesus is in the home of Simon Peter. As we think of this, we know that a great crowd assembles. They hear Jesus is there. They fill the home. They overfill the home. And, and they crowd the doorway with spectators outside trying to look in. In the midst of this absolute mass of humanity, this huge crowd of people, we find four men trying to bring their friend to Jesus Christ. Their friend was crippled and they just had to bring him to Jesus because they knew that if Jesus would, he could heal their friend and his health would be restored. They stood there wondering, how are we going to get in there? There's a big crowd outside. The, the door is crowded. It's completely crowded inside where Jesus is. How are we going to get our friend to Jesus Christ? And that's when they had an idea. It was a crazy idea. I'm sure it seemed peculiar to those that watched them try to do what it was they considered doing, but it proved to be an effective idea. Their idea was this, let's climb up on the roof, and there would have either been a ladder or stairs, as was the custom in first century homes, to get up to the roof, and they said, let's just tear the roof apart, and we'll lower our friend down inside. Roofs in this time were were built in a variety of ways, but the most common way was uh, large beams going across, followed by many smaller beams going long ways. You get the inside look of a, of a roof there. And on top of that, there would have been a hard-packed mud with a lime substance. And sometimes on top of that, they would have put a, a sod, and, and that would have finished the roof off. It, it would have taken some work, but they could have gotten up there and they could have torn the sod back and torn the clay back and torn the smaller branches back to get to those larger beams and pushed them aside. And, and if this was the home of Peter, and I think it probably was, I can just imagine him stuck inside his house. He can't get out just like they can't get in, looking at people, tearing his roof apart and, and wondering what is happening here. There was something for everybody to see. It would have gotten everyone's attention. Nobody would have missed what was happening. It was unusual. It was peculiar. It, it, was, it was interesting. Everybody would have seen something. But I want us to consider what Jesus saw. In time, his friends lowered the man to Jesus, and the Lord performed a miracle, and it was a remarkable day that ended very differently than anyone could have imagined. And in many ways, I believe this was the greatest miracle in the life of Jesus Christ. 
And the reason I say that is because this was an occasion where Jesus had an opportunity to prove that he indeed is God the Son in no uncertain terms and to assert the reality that because he is God, he's deity, that he then has the prerogative to forgive sins. And the Bible records that there was an entourage of religious leaders there to observe the life of Christ. And he uses this whole experience as an occasion to serve as a practical illustration that Jesus is God and that he can forgive sins. From the perspective of all that witnessed that event, the story was told and retold. As we've seen in our introduction to the Gospel of Mark, Mark was not an eyewitness to this account, but Peter was, and Peter was the one working with Mark as these words were being recorded. And it's interesting to me that, that Peter, probably not only an eyewitness, but, but he was the recipient of the roof that had been torn apart. He, he was remembering really vividly what had happened. Everyone would have mentioned what they noticed most, but again, what did Jesus notice most and as we look through his eyes we're going to begin today by saying that as he looked he saw that the crowd needed preaching the crowd needed preaching i i love the expression as we get started in this text when the bible says it was noised that he was in the house and if there's any noise that is worthy of hearing it's noise that lets us know about jesus christ for some days he'd been gone, he's back now in Capernaum, and, and apparently people are excited to have an idea of where Jesus is, and I think we would do well to learn from the example of those who spread the word, Jesus is in town, he's in the house, Jesus is here, and he can help you, and he can heal you, Jesus is here, and there was an excitement, and the excitement spread quickly, rapidly throughout the community. As Jesus was literally surrounded by the crowd, I'm sure the expectations varied some wanted to see a miracle. They just wanted to see one. Others needed a miracle. They, they had a need in their lives. And, and so there were a variety of expectations. But being perceptive as he was, Jesus gave them not what they expected. He gave them what they needed. And the Bible says in response to this huge crowd, Jesus preached the word unto them. Now, it's really unfortunate to me that in our day and time, the word preach is perceived by almost everybody in a negative way. We'll say things like, don't preach to me. There was a time, I've been told, where you could say in America that you were a, a preacher, and people would say, oh, that's great. They were glad to meet you anymore. You know, I'm a preacher. It's like, get away from this guy. You know, he's a weirdo. I, I may be a weirdo. I don't know. But, but uh, the meaning of that word has changed. And it's not a word that we should run away from. It's a word that we should embrace. Jesus looked at these people and he said, you know, they have an idea of what they need, but I know what they need. They need preaching, preaching. I think one reason that that there's kind of this negative connotation to the word is we we think preaching means judgmentalism or condemnation. But when Jesus preached, it was none of that. We know the Bible says in John three and verse 17 that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Now make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is returning again, and he's not coming as the lamb that arrived on Christmas. He's coming as the lion, and he is a holy God, and he is bringing judgment for those who refuse to accept his free gift of eternal life. But when he came that first time and lived the life of which we're reading now, he didn't come to bring condemnation. He preached a liberating and a transforming truth. And, and certainly it pointed out sin and the ramifications thereof. But it pointed beyond that to forgiveness and a relationship with God through faith that will last forever. 
We don't find exactly what Jesus preached in this text. The Bible just says he preached the word. What's interesting to me about that statement is the Bible tells us that Jesus is the word. See, the Bible in John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning, and that's a familiar way to start. The Bible in Genesis 1-1 began that way. But in John 1-1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Bible tells us that one of the names for Jesus Christ is the Word. In John 1 and verse 14, the Bible says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Whichever passage of Scripture Jesus used that day or whichever words He chose to express what it was that was on His heart, the essence of the message that Jesus preached was me. He preached Himself. He preached what He provided. And I want you to know that's still what comprises a good message today. A message that talks about Jesus Christ. A message that lifts up the work that He has done for us. You see, Jesus is the message that people needed then. He's the message that people need today. I'm sure there were those in that time that would have thought, now wait a minute, Jesus, you're up there preaching. I don't need a sermon. I need a miracle. I need healing. I need help. I don't need to be preached at. I need to be helped in a practical and a tangible way. Maybe a parent with a sick child thought, this is all fine and well, but my child needs help. And through all of this, we see that Jesus communicated that what we need more than the help of God is the God of the help. If you get the help of God one time, you've been helped one time. But if you get the God of the help, you then have a relationship with Him that lasts forever. And you can walk with Him and talk with Him and know what it is to have Him work in your life in a great way. Listen, we don't come to God to have Him perform a trick to our advantage. We come to Him to establish a relationship by faith, to know Him, to have a relationship with Him that will last forever. This is liberating for me to understand as a pastor. You see, I couldn't possibly know every problem that's represented in this room. And if I did, I couldn't possibly craft a single message that would touch every need represented in this room. But if I'll stand behind this pulpit and do my best to be studied up and prayed up and to walk with God during the week, and and if I can stand behind this pulpit and share Jesus with you, I'm sharing that one person... Jesus Christ, God the Son, who can minister to every need and help every hurt and and, and transform every life. It's a joy to know that the message Jesus preached, we can preach today. It's a great message. Think of that. My role is is not just to feed. I am to feed, the Bible says, as as an under-shepherd. But it's to help people come to the place where they know Jesus and they can begin to feed themselves Psalm 5 and verse 2 says, Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. I love the heart that comes to the place where they say, God, I'm coming to you personally. I need you in my life, and, and I'm turning to you. Of all the needs present that day, Jesus perceived that the greatest need among the crowd was to hear him as he preached the word. Jesus continued to look. He looked to the committed. And as we consider the second element, the committed, he realized, needed power. They needed power. Now, as we continue, we we meet this group of five men. One of them, the Bible says, was sick of the palsy. And and as we consider that word in the language of the New Testament, it's, 
It's really the idea of paralyze. Paralytikos is the word. It means uh, unable to move, paralyzed. And his friends, each, the Bible says, grab a corner of what we might call a stretcher or a cot. And, and the four friends bring the one friend who can't get himself to Jesus Christ. They're traveling and, 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 and moving. It was a great scene of commitment and compassion and, and really of camaraderie as they're all working together to do what they could not have done without the help of the others. The four really have a lot to teach us. The, the Bible reveals in this great picture that they were selfless and, and they cared about other people. There would have been something easier to have been done, but they saw that need and said, I've just got to do something here. And as they pressed on, they were diligent. They found a reason to quit, didn't they? They could have approached the home and seen the crowd, the inability to get in the, the door. They could have had any number of reasons to say, you know, oh, well, it didn't work out, but they pressed on. They were diligent. They didn't let the roadblock of the crowd prevent them. They worked together as a team. Had anyone dropped the corner, that poor guy would have went rolling out on the ground with no ability to help himself. They, they all worked together and did their part. And they just knew that Jesus could take care of their friends' problems. And so they pressed on in faith. All of it was a work of faith. And really, those four men have all the attributes of a good church family. They knew Jesus could solve the problem. They saw the needs in the lives of others and were moved. They worked together. They were diligent. They were persistent. They, they didn't want to let their end of, of the cot, so to speak, down. They, they just worked together to help get people to Jesus Christ. Friends, let me tell you something. Everything we do at Coastline Baptist Church is to get people to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I need help. We'll do our very best to help you, to bring you to spiritual health and maturity and vitality so that you can bring people to Jesus Christ. You say, we need marriage counseling. We'll do our very best to give the best counseling we can so that you can be brought to a point of, of spiritual health so that through your marriage you can be a testimony of the grace of God and, and through your life you can bring others to Jesus Christ. You say, we're, we're needing some help with our children. We'll do our very best so that your children can, can grow up to be, be champions for the Lord and through their lives, bring others to Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. We meet in this room, but really uh, our heart as we gather together here is for God and for those that aren't yet in, so to speak, in terms of knowing the Lord. We want to bring people to Jesus Christ. We see the perception of Christ in verse 5. The Bible says there, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, there was a lot to see, but it was their faith that caught the attention of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we use the expression, hey, keep the faith, man. Keep the faith. That's, that's not a bad idea. I'm all for keeping the faith. But I think there's something to be said for doing faith. Doing it. Now, I don't know if that works grammatically, but, but I think biblically, that's a great statement. Uh, in other words, don't, don't tell me, James would say, that you have faith if you're not willing to do anything with the faith and Jesus looked in the lives of these men. He saw their faith. Listen, uh, it's a great, great opportunity for us to see the truth that we are saved by faith. But when we come to God in faith, not by works, when we come to God in faith and a relationship established, that that faith is then to produce works. Works don't produce faith, but faith is to produce works. James 2.26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also 
And could it be that the reason there are so many Christians that appear to be very, very dead in their Christianity is because although they had faith to come to Christ, to, to know Christ, to have a relationship with Christ, that faith has not produced any works, and so they're just living a life of absolute spiritual lethargy, the kind of life that James, the brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would, would call a dead life, spiritually speaking. When Jesus saw the faith that motivated and mobilized these men, he then did what they could not do. They did what they could do, and then Jesus did what they could not do. He healed their friend. They had to come to Jesus and say, all right, Lord, we, we can't heal this guy, but we know you can. Uh, we're coming up just two weeks away from our church's anniversary, and I, I don't know what that means to you, but I know what it means to me. Um, I was talking with Brother Mike Gass before the service, Ryan's dad, and many of you know him, he's spoken here several times, and, and their church is getting ready to have their 34th anniversary, and uh, I, I told him, I said, sometimes I feel like, you know, I just got here, and other times I feel like I've been here for my whole life, you know, just lagging, and other times just so fresh, you know, but it's great, and it's a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. And I'm thankful for what the Lord's done. I remember as we came to this area, not knowing anybody, and I often like to make that point because I just think God is so wonderful, you know, uh, to, to lead someone. And there was no doubt in our minds we were to come to this area, but there was no reason that I could point to. We didn't know anybody. And we just went to work and we started inviting everybody. I mean, uh, we, we, we had realtors and bankers visit early on because those were people we were making as we, uh, we were uh, meeting as we came to town. I remember we got out our family and Lisa would always go on one side of the street with Jessica and I'd push uh, Julie in the stroller or vice versa. And, and we went to about 10,000 homes in this area just to, just to hand deliver, personally deliver an invitation to our opening service. And we work and we work and we work. And I remember that Saturday night before our first Sunday. Uh, we had worked so hard and I remember I sat down and I thought, we don't have anything to take an offering in. That's a big problem, okay? And uh, so we went to Michael's, I think, some, one of those stores ladies like to go to, and, and uh, we got baskets. And then that, we thought, okay, we take the offering in these baskets. And then we came home again, we sat down, and, and uh, I thought, man, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I remember sometime late Saturday night or in the wee hours of the morning, Sunday morning, I, I, I came to know personally what it meant to just give something to God. I had to say, Lord, you know what, I've, I've done about all I can do, and of course, any strength we have, it all comes from God. I, I, I know it's all of God, but, but, but I had to just come to the place where I would say, you know, Lord, I, I, I've done about what I can. I, I don't know what else to do. We've, we've, we've worked hard, and, and here, you've just got to take it and do now what only you can do. There's nothing we can do in terms of touching a heart. We can touch someone's hand as we give them an invitation. Maybe we can touch an ear as we express an invitation, but God, only you can touch a heart. We had to say, God, here it is. It's it's just whatever you're going to do, we're just going to have to accept that. And these four men brought their one that was sick to, the, to Christ, and, and they had to just ultimately say, uh, Lord, we can't save our friend. We'll bring our friend to you, but only you can save him. These men did all they could, and Jesus blessed their labor of faith. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica these words. He said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. And labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He was talking about people who are willing to not just believe right, but to have behavior that was consistent with what they profess to believe. You see, our behavior is linked to our beliefs. 
And if our life is very, very different than from what we would proclaim to believe, the Bible says, I doubt the sincerity of that belief. He said, I saw your work of faith. These men had great faith in the power of God, and they came to Jesus, and Jesus didn't disappoint them. He never does. And, and he looked at their friend, and he lovingly said, son. Now, that's a great word. And there are a variety of words that we could translate son, but, but, but this one paints the picture of a tender, fatherly care. He looked at him and said, son, this, this relationship. And, and he goes on from there to say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, I don't know how many books I've read on the Gospel of Mark, more than I care to remember. And, and, and all the authors of the various commentaries and books on the Gospel of Mark, they, they all have their opinion. Was Jesus implying that it was because of sin that this man was paralyzed? Was it through some act of sin that, that this paralysis came upon him? And I don't know if it was a specific act of sin in his life, but this much I do know. Because of sin in general, because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, because of the depravity of man, all of this sickness and disease and, and all of these things comes, sin really really is the source of every problem that we have today. The problems in your life are the result of sin. If not sins you've committed, sins that others have committed that have had ramifications in your life. And that means that Jesus is the answer to these problems. They, they come to Jesus and he looks at this man and says, Thy sins be forgiven thee. In one way or another, sin was the cause and the power of Jesus was the solution. And so Jesus looks to the committed and he says they brought him, but, but they don't have the power to save. They need power. From there, he, he looks, Jesus looks to the confused. And they needed particulars. Because when Jesus did that, everybody wasn't understanding what's going on. The people gathered that day. They observed all that was going on. They, they were confused. And I think we can all relate to times of confusion. We, we meet a group in this setting. The Bible calls scribes. And they specialized in the law. And they specialized in the writing of the law. And the Bible says that they're looking at all this. At Jesus. They're listening to what he is saying. And the Bible says they're reasoning in their hearts. They're reasoning in their hearts. They were surmising, they were guessing, they were wondering in their hearts, in their human hearts. They're just kind of trying to figure it all out. And that's about all we can do when we don't know the Lord. Just try and figure it all out. Wonder, guess. But the opposite of that is what Jesus was doing. For the Bible says he perceived in his spirit. Perceive means to look at something and understand it completely. The idea in this word really is to know, to have complete understanding in his spirit. So we have the scribes. These were religious people, but they didn't really know God. All they could do is kind of wonder, what is Jesus doing here? What is he talking about? Your sins are forgiven. And then we see Jesus looking at them. And he's not just kind of wondering in his spirit. He has a conviction and understanding of what is taking place. He perceived Scribes said, who can forgive sins but God only? And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. But they had a gross misunderstanding. They didn't realize that Jesus is God, the Son. So Jesus effectively says that talking is one thing, but his actions are another. Again, a miracle is used to validate his words, and he proves his deity. He healed the man so that, this is what the Bible says, ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And that's great news. That's great news. Because if sin is a common problem that we all share, 
that brings all kinds of, of fruits into our lives, it's good to know that God became flesh and dwelt among us and died on a cross and was buried and rose again the third day to, to validate that this truth is for us and that He is who He said that He was to pay for the price of our sin. This is great news for us to know that Jesus is a God of love. It means that Jesus saves. And of course, Paul wrote in Colossians 1 and verse 4, in whom, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that, that it's through the shedding of blood that we find the remission of sins. And, and we could have paid for all of eternity for our own sins in the awful place we don't even like to talk about. It's the place the Bible calls hell. Or Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect, could shed his blood. And through the price he paid, not for his own sin, he could apply to our account. And through faith, we can be saved from our sins forever. The final thought I want us to consider briefly is that Jesus looked at this crippled man and, and he found that he needed potential. He had no hope in his life. He had no future. And, and Jesus gave him the opportunity, the potential. Now, the text closes with this man who was paralyzed, taking his bed and walking before them all. And, and this all came from a man who saw nothing but limitations in his life. He, he knew what he could not do, where he could not go, what he could not become. All he saw in his life was limitations, was dead ends. And, and he meets Jesus. And when he got up, it was a testimony of what Jesus had done in his life. But when he walked all around, his daily walk was an ongoing testimony to the power of Christ. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This man walked. He, he was, he was a, a workmanship of Jesus Christ. He was healed and he didn't just stand up and rejoice in that for a moment and sit right back down. He said, you know, I'm going to walk the rest of my life now that I can. And he was a living testimony of the power of God. This man walked. People had no choice but to stand in awe. Our text says it this way. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never saw it on this fashion. In other words, they said, man alive, we've never seen anything like this before. It's amazing. They, they, they were shocked by what it was that Jesus did. When we look to Jesus and see how he looks at us and through us, we have to conclude there's no Savior in the world like God the Son, Jesus Christ. Because He's a God who changes people by His grace. As we began, we were talking for a few moments about Pearl Harbor. I had the opportunity recently to visit Pearl Harbor, and I realize it's been a number of years, but it's still an incredibly moving place. And for those of you that have been there, it's just, it's really, it's the whole thing is a memorial. It's moving. Consider the view that Admiral Nimitz held is, is inspiring. The way in which he looked at what, what we call Pearl Harbor. While there I learned something that I, I hadn't considered before. I might have known, but I hadn't considered. Of the 21 vessels that were sunk in, in Pearl Harbor, of the 21, all but three were repaired and put back into service. The Arizona, the Utah, and the Oklahoma still down. The others were raised up. I was walking around and I was reading the different plaques that tell the stories. And, and I read a plaque that had a quote from Edward Raymer. 
He was a Navy diver. And this is a quote he made. He said, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever raised a a battle-damaged battleship before. And of the 21, all but three had done what had never been done before. Because someone looked and rather than just seeing the obstacles, they saw the opportunities. What happened in the days that followed Pearl Harbor is as encouraging, really, as the attack was defeating. And I want you to know that when Jesus sees a life that has been shipwrecked by sin, that that he doesn't see a hopeless situation. He doesn't see a life that is just destined to live beneath the surface, never really finding any usefulness or fulfillment, never really going anywhere, so to speak, again. When Jesus sees a life that has been shipwrecked because of sin, he says, by my grace, I can can do a salvage project here. I can bring salvation. I can put a potential into their life that will allow them to go places and do things that never before could have been done in their own strength. He's a great savior. And we don't have to wonder if he will save us. Because when he died on the cross of Calvary, that whole process was him saying, yes, I will. The question is, will we receive his gift of salvation? The Bible in Acts 2.21 says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Sometimes uh, we wonder why the Bible uses peculiar words that we don't really use as much anymore. We think of the word shall, and somebody could say that word means will. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And shall doesn't mean will. It's more emphatic than the word will. Shall means, if I could define it this way, no doubt about it. It's certain. It's settled. The Bible says, listen, if you'll call on the name of the Lord for salvation, no doubt about it, he'll save you. That's pretty, pretty great truth right there. Maybe you're here today and you say, I have no doubt in my life. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I've been saved. Well, maybe you like me have had a few times in your life where you managed to take a little water onto the proverbial vessel of life and maybe the bilge pump wasn't working just quite right and you're a little low in the water and you need the Lord to do another work in your life. And every time we turn to Him, we're going to find that He's a good and a kind and a loving and a gracious God. He loves us enough at times to correct us when we're wrong, of course. But we'll never be disappointed when we turn to Him. He does a great work in our lives. Our Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture and this chance to...